Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. Since we humans have the better brain, isn't it our responsibility to protect our fellow creatures from, oddly enough, ourselves? Joy Adamson in Barbara McDowell. 1977. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today I'm speaking to Professor Carol J. Adams about her book, The Sexual Politics of Meat. And I'm speaking to Professor Carol J. Adams. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Beth. Now, what was it that inspired you to write the very famous Sexual Politics of Meat? Well, I think the minute I realized there was a connection between feminism and vegetarianism and conversely a connection between meat-eating and the patriarchal world, I just knew I had to write about it. Doing that was a long process because I had the original idea in the fall of 1974. I wrote it up as a paper I was in a graduate course with Mary Daly, the famous radical philosopher, radical feminist philosopher. And I was living in the Cambridge feminist community, Cambridge, Massachusetts, just this wonderfully fecund and, and supportive community. And everybody had ideas and suggestions and references. Have you thought of this? Have you thought of that? And I collected all that, but then suddenly it became a larger project than simply an article or um, an essay. And at first, the book was going to come out, unbelievably enough, in 1976. But I looked at it, and I felt that I did not adequately understand myself what the connection was. I was showing parallels, but not interconnections. So I put it aside and became a grassroots activist in upstate New York. But all the time that I was doing that, working against racism and starting a hotline for battered women and doing work against hunger in a rural area, I was keeping track of new ideas and new citations and new references and new experiences I was having just as an advocate against the dominant culture. And finally... In 1987, I read a book, a feminist literary scholarship, that introduced me to the idea of the absent referent, which is a literary term that I politicized when I realized that animals were absent reference in our culture, that they disappear to become meat. And I remember thinking that I fell asleep, and the next morning I woke up and I thought, well, women are absent reference in our culture, too, because of misogyny. And from that point, it took me two years 
to finish writing the book. I think I think I'm a very driven person, but during all those years of activism, I I held on to this desire. I didn't hold on to it. I think it just drove me. It 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 possessed me. I, at some point, it felt like I had to disgorge it. It it, it was going to drive me crazy, literally, if I could not figure this out. I had worried it in my brain and in my body for so long, and so I finished it in the summer of 1989, and it came out in early 1990, and so it was not a simple process. (laughs) Well, it was certainly worth all the effort. Thank you. So what is the connection between male identification and meat eating? Well, I find in in Western cultures and in uh, places like Australia, very influenced by the colonial presence of, of Britain, that there has always been an emphasis on the virility of meat eating, the so that meat-eating became an identification not just of an individual man, but of a whole country. Uh, Australia is a virile meat-eating country, or Great Britain with its beef-eaters, or the United States. So to begin with, it, it becomes a marker, or, an, or a, a marker of identity, of masculine identity. It also, there's a connection, I believe, in the idea that in this world in which we're still controlled or uh, the gender binary uh, with its determination of sex roles and sex assumptions is, is still held on to by the majority of, of, of our culture. That part of this marker is you know that he's a man because he's eating meat. If he's eating tofu, well, what does that mean? He's not a red-blooded heterosexual. Oh, maybe he's gay, uh, according to these stereotypes. But the other way that this is marked or mapped is that men have been associated with rationality. We know Western philosophy's tradition of the man of reason. And women with uh, sympathy or emotion or caring. And so it's seen as part of manhood to not have emotions or to not care, uh, just like it's seen as part of adulthood, that our adulthood is, is male-defined, you know, so that children who get upset about an animal dying are told to grow up, or boys are told don't act like a sissy, a, a female-identified term. So besides this notion of the individual or the country getting its identity of maleness and masculinity from meat-eating, we've also got working at, at perhaps a, a less overt uh, level, this notion that we're not supposed to care about what happens to animals. We're not supposed to notice that meat is coming from a dead animal. We're not supposed to disturb the absent reference. And so a part of the feminist vegan challenge to this connection or this constantly reifying relationship between meat-eating and masculinity is to to say caring and emotions are legitimate aspects of our lives and they participate in justice making uh, as much as rationality does.
So I see that as a connection as well. There is also a connection between poverty and the eating of meat. Well, this is a very complicated one. I think first we have to talk about the historic traditions of meat eating, that in the Western world especially, very few people actually ate meat every day, uh, say in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. Meat eating was something the upper classes or the royalty did. The, the peasants, the poor, they were not eating meat daily. That all changed with the colonizing of the United States, the, the continental United States, and the land grab from Native Americans, so that suddenly there was enough land to have uh, meat animals, uh, farmed animals, to grow the food for, because I'm sure your listeners know at this point that it takes from one to eight or eight to 16 acres or pounds of, uh, we'll say six, eight to 16 pounds of fodder to produce a pound of, of meat plus water and all. So you need land to do that on, which the European countries did not have. But now the United States had it, and so a lot of uh, cattle were raised, and once refrigeration was invented at the end of the 19th century, there was a way to distribute meat throughout the country on, on refrigerated cars, on trains. And so immigrants to the United States of the 19th century would report, you know, we, we eat meat three times a day. It was also said they underreported how much meat they ate because nobody at home back in Europe would believe them. So something transformative happened about the assumption about who eats meat through the, the creation of the 19th century United States. And... I see this happening, and it, it may be paralleled in Australia as well, but it was a sort of democratization of meat-eating. So that not only was it now sort of a male-defined right, it became like this right of the, of the citizen to have meat. And meat prices were low. So one of the things that also happened was that ethnic groups whose traditional diet had, had had meat as a flavor, say a bone soup or, you know, split pea soup that really just has little pieces of meat in it, suddenly did not have to follow their traditional folk ways and were eating meat. So one of the first things we have to talk about is that uh, vegetable protein is much cheaper than uh, protein from animals. And that all around the world, uh, cultures developed healthy foods, healthy meals that were complete protein from hummus, uh, Japanese tofu and rice, uh, Chinese tofu, Indian dal and rice, uh, lentils and rice, falafels, all of those, the Mexican uh, corn and beans. All of those were wonderful vegan protein sources. But through the advances in the 20th century in the production of meat and in the protection of meat and dairy production, 
by national governments like in the United States so that uh, the real price of those foods is kept low, suddenly it's thought that meat eating is the inexpensive way of living. So it's a complete reversal of the historical uh, experience. Now, there's a quote by Alice Walker that says, the men were better hunters than the women, but only because the women had found they could live quite well on the foods other than meat. So this sort of raises the whole issue of sort of the anthropology of meat eating and the sexual politics of meat. I cite uh, Peggy Sandy, uh, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania who did a sort of meta-search of all the anthropological reports of uh, non-industrial cultures. And what she found was that there were plant-based economies and meat-based economies. And meat-based economies, uh, the things that she noticed, were that those were more likely to have men in control Men were not involved in child care, and the divine being being worshipped in that culture was more likely to be male. But when women contributed a large portion of protein through plant protein, those cultures were more likely to be egalitarian and have men participating in child care and to have uh, male and female div- divinities. And what I think is interesting is that there was this very popularized, you know, sort of pop anthropology of the 1960s that talked about man the hunter. So that there was this notion that we had evolved because men hunted and their tools survived. This was even proposed that this is how we became bipedal, why women's breasts were in the front. It was a very creative misogyny and, and patriarchal attitude laced into uh, this pop anthropology. And feminist anthropologists and and writers, uh, academics, in the early 1970s started to point out that the fallacies in this approach, one of which was that the digging tools and the tools that women would have used as gathering, as gatherers, do not survive. So we we don't have their presence in the stratified layers that that are uncovered in digs. And so the fact that the majority of protein was probably coming from plants disappears because the tools that were used to acquire them uh, have also disappeared. And so one of the... Well, here's another aspect of the male identification and meat-eating was this, this sort of myth of man the hunter. So I think Alice Walker's having a little fun there. <laughs> but there are, there are myths, too, you know, that men were out hunting and, and, you know, they ran out of meat. They went over to the women's camp and they ate their plant food and they liked it. You know, the first man disappears and he likes it and he stays. And then the second man comes over from the hunting camp and finds that the first man's there and he likes the plant food and he stays. And so eventually they all stay except one man walks, runs away. So it's kind of like developing a counter-mythology, and I think that's a very appropriate thing to do. 
You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 8.55 on your AM dial, and I'm speaking to Professor Carol J. Adams about the sexual politics of meat. Yes, we haven't had a TV commercial here with a man and a great ape, and uh, it was more or less saying that people have evolved to the level that we're at because we ate meat and the great apes haven't because they didn't. They were vegetarian. See, that's that's part of the legacy of this man, the hunter. I mean, it, it's even been argued that language came from women uh, gathering because say that you and I and a, a group of women were in a field and we were gathering something and as we got what we had gathered, seeds or whatever, we kept moving further and further apart. So we'd do a call and respond to make sure we knew where the other women were. So this notion that, you know, civilization is due to violence is is like this way of protecting the status quo and not learning about these other possibilities. I like the idea that our that that language might be related to plant eating. I think that's pretty neat. Yeah, that makes sense because if men were hunting, they'd use signs, wouldn't they? Because they couldn't sort of shout out to each other. Right, and also they had to be quiet, and they often, you know, hunted together. But here's another thing. In this history of hunting, what's never told, I mean... People have this notion of these brave men hiding, uh, you know, hunting the woolly mammoth and, and all. But the first meat that was probably eaten was insects and, and the uh, remnant of the offal that was left by carnivorous animals. That, so the first meat that was being eaten wasn't this heroic stalking hunter, but uh, someone who's, who's looking for protein that's that's around, that's been left, left by a carnivore. So it's completely counter to this notion that, that uh, prevails in our culture. How is meat a symbol of patriarchy? Uh, <laughs> in the first chapter of Sexual Politics and Meat, I suggest that we, we experience how meat is a symbol of patriarchy when it's left out of a meal because people can get very upset and the way they act and respond to that is telling us something so that the just as a meal is supposed to uh, sort of climb up from appetizer or soup, you know, in the traditional sense, to this main course with meat in the middle, with veggies on the side, you know, uh, meat and two veg, as as the British would say, and then it it moves back down. The culmination being this main plated steak or whatever that the absence of meat from the plate doesn't just disturb meat eating, it disturbs something else, it disturbs power dynamics. And so one of the things people could do is look at examples from ads that show that in a sense masculinity has to be constantly recuperated through meat eating. It's very funny, when the sexual politics of meat came out, I had ads that you know said eat like a man or whatever. But now I'm seeing these ads that are sort of trying to recuperate that as though veganism and feminism actually made some inroads in the 1990s. And, and now the instability of the identity is, is exposed, and, and they're trying to restabilize it. It's like renew your man card. And 
I've had my library card for 30 years. I've never had to rebuild it. Why is a man card so unstable? It's got to be renewed at every meal. So meat becomes a symbol, this reification of the unspoken uh, dominance that's been uh, given to men in a patriarchal world, a misogynist world. We see that in, in the United States right now, the, the win of Donald Trump in the presidential election, someone who handed out stakes at his primary, um, after his primary elections, someone who just was reported last night evaded the press corps, who were supposed to always accompany a president-elect, and he ran off in New York to a steakhouse to announce tax cuts for, for the rich that there's these trappings of power that go along with these bleeding pieces of meat. And part of that power is the power that's implied but doesn't have to be spoken. I, I can be fed dead animals. I can be fed expensive parts of dead animals. And there's a part that's saying... Don't, don't disturb my power, and don't disturb my privilege. My privilege right now is unproblematized. But my right to eat meat is, is hidden within this privilege, and the privilege has disappeared, and it's just about pleasure. So when people react and, and get angry at, at vegans for simply eating a vegan meal, it's because that privilege has been disturbed. And then we're going to see recuperative acts. The, the, the patriarchal symbol is thrown off, and it's got to be recuperated. Yes, Trump certainly is a... Yeah, he's, he's sort of... He is very much a symbol of patriarchy, and, and not just in the way he eats meat, but also the way he gropes at women. Right. The whole thing is this misogynistic sort of pornography of me, one of my other books, where I talk about how, uh, and I, I talk about it in sexual politics of me too, but how men are enabled to look at women as body parts and compare those body parts to dead animal body parts so that the woman isn't seen as a subject of her own life. There was an interesting op-ed about him right after the videotape came out in which he speaks of women's body parts and grabbing a, a woman's pussy and, and all. And it said to Donald Trump and, and really to misogynists, men are human, but women are women. And so back to this idea of how Western philosophers even define humanity in the man of reason, it was all burdened or, or shrouded within masculine notion. So the question for women is, do we then re accept that definition of human? Or do we find that we're always going to be positioned sort of outside of it in this liminal space, neither man nor beast, as I say in another book, because we're not seen as fully human. We, there's this constant move to objectify. To, to fragment the woman. Uh, a fragmented woman is not, doesn't have a voice, you know, a fixation on body parts. Look at what happened to your prime minister 
uh, Julia Gillard, that the the way her opponents had that dinner in which supposedly her body parts were being reified by references to to uh, dead animal body parts. Powerful women are frightening, and, and yet whether it's Hillary Clinton or your former prime minister or other women or just everyday women, their power is reduced by seeing them as Trump did, as women, not as humans. And not just that, the second part of that is as women who are closer to or are animals, unlike men who are human. So that the species divide gets mapped upon the gender divide or the gender binary. And that becomes very dangerous. Because then what happens is that when we try to make these points, say feminist vegans or eco-feminists, when we try to make these points, there are some feminists who say, don't compare us to animals. You know, we're human. Don't compare us to animals. And the fact is, we're not. The culture has already done that. The dominant culture, the patriarchal culture, has already established that. If we don't look at how that comparison works, why that comparison exists, and the complete powerlessness of animals on the other side of the species barrier. And in a sense, what I talk about is their feminized status and their sexualized status. We aren't going to undo misogyny because misogyny has left over the species barrier. Misogyny is operating on the other side. And that misogyny is helping to keep women from being seen as human. Often rape victims and battered women say they felt like a piece of meat. Well, it's a complicated thing. I mean, it's the first, what they're saying is the existential crisis of having been treated as an object, as someone without feelings, as someone who did not matter. Because a piece of meat is sort of the epitome of and of a being who does not matter, they're dead. They don't actually feel like anything. So to feel like a piece of meat is a very graphic representation of how dangerous and terrible sexual violence and domestic violence are. Yet I, in the sexual politics of meat in Chapter 2, when, when I look at that, I, I want to push that because I, I would like, uh, feminists and, and other progressives to find a way to say, gosh, nobody should have to treat, feel like a piece of meat. In the United States, there was a, a domestic violence activism that showed um, oh, a side of beef and it had a skirt on it, so it was sort of feminized. And it said, no one should be treated like one, or she should not be treated like one. But it, it, it doesn't go over and say, well, not just battered women should not be treated like pieces of meat. Animals shouldn't be treated like pieces of meat. And in Europe, Cuban rights activists have used the image of women uh, covered in cellophane, like they're for sale, like pieces of meat, to protest trafficking. But again, it's using a metaphor. It's, it's empowering a metaphor whose very power comes from the ultimately most powerless, the animals who are destroyed to become 
someone's pleasure. And I've been speaking to Professor Carol J. Adams about the sexual politics of meat. Well, that's all we have time for today. I hope you've enjoyed the program and been given plenty of food for thought. And I've enjoyed your company, so tune in again next week for part two of Professor Carol J. Adams speaking about her book, The Sexual Politics of Meat. (laughs) 